Welcome to the Your Story is Our Story podcast, brought to you by the new 3Rs.org, which is dedicated to telling the social justice stories of yesterday and today. My name is Neil Foote, host of this podcast, where we will have honest, heartfelt, and heart-wrenching conversations about race and culture in our communities. This podcast is our simple way of helping you to join us in our mission, which simply says, by using stories of social justice to dismantle racism, the new three R's unlock civic and compassionate leadership at school, at home, and at work. We offer programs and resources to educate and empower children, parents, educators, and workplace leaders through a lens of racial justice and racial awareness. The new three R's educates and empowers through the art of social justice storytelling, building relationships and fostering a sense of responsibility. We are creating a more civic and compassionate society, one child at a time. Thanks for joining us today, and remember to follow us on social at the new three R's. That's the new N-E-W, the number three R's. Welcome to this episode of the Your Story is Our Story podcast. This week, we're kicking off a three-part series where we'll be having a fascinating conversation with three parents in New York City who are fighting for change in one of the nation's most segregated public school systems in a city that's one of the most diverse in the country. Our theme, Moral Responsibility, goes to the heart of how we as parents cannot sit idly by and let educational systems in New York, as well as in any other city around the country, relinquish their moral responsibility to make sure our children get equal access to a quality education. During our conversations, we'll discuss how these three women, Camille Casaretti, Naomi Pena, and Chino Tinikoa, have become true forces for change in their communities. In today's episode, Your Story Matters, Camille, Naomi, and Shino discuss their own personal journeys that have helped shape their passion for driving change in education and their communities. We'll end the episode with a Black history fact from our very own Danny Gore Sr. Let's dive into the conversation. Yeah, Camille, Namish, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. I know this is a busy time for everybody, but I really appreciate you all being here today uh, with, uh, with the conversation and the new three R's. Let's dive in. Um, I, I want to kind of set the framework in this first uh, part of our conversation of just letting folks know who you all are. And so if you can just kind of briefly tell everyone a little bit about who you are, where you're from, you know, if you have children, how many children you have, and uh, just a little bit of a background, and that that will kind of, to me, set up this whole conversation that we're having today. And, uh, and I'll, I'll start off with you, Camille, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Neil. Um, like you, I also <laughs> grew up in Brooklyn. I was born in Brooklyn in the 1970s. Um, well, I was born in the 60s, but I pretty much grew up in the 70s. Um, I am the child of an Italian-American family, and um, at the time when New York was in the middle of significant racial conflict, um, I saw black and brown people criminalized in the news um, and in my neighborhood conversations, and I saw how that fear-mongering 
um, that was being created could separate people. And like most of us, my young adult experiences um, shaped my thoughts and are part of the reason for why I advocate so strongly for culturally responsive uh, curriculum. Um, my mother had immigrated to this country at the age of seven, and she came here with her five-year-old sister and no adult accompaniment. Um, stories that she told me um, and my brother and sister about her introduction to American life were really challenging, um, especially in the school system where uh, she was not accepted at all for the person that she was. She was not allowed to speak her language. Um, I still live in Brooklyn. Although I've traveled extensively in my life, I've been married for 18 years to a wonderful man and I have two amazing children. Um, one of them is in middle school and one in high school. Excellent, all right. Representing Brooklyn in the house, very nice. <laughs> Naomi, tell us about yourself. Hi, um, my name is Naomi Pena. I am also a native New Yorker, um, born and raised um, in the 1980s in NYCHA, proud NYCHA product. Um, my mom is Puerto Rican, my dad is Dominican. My mom came to this, you know, to the city during Operation Bootstrap. Um, well, you know, uh, appointment program from uh, Puerto Rico aimed to bring workers to the United States with the promise of you, you know, poor immigrants from the island will make more money. Um, and what they walked into was not that. Um, my dad was also um, from Dominican, my dad migrated from Dominican Republic here. He, in, back in his country was a police officer. And when he came to this country, um, all of that did not matter as it often happens. Um, the United States never recognizes the accomplishments that other immigrants have in their country and never equate them as equal. They always make them less. Um, my dad died in 1987 and he ultimately died um, being a bus boy at a hotel chain. Um, so my mom raised me um, by herself and you know ultimately the things that I've experienced you know, I, I didn't know I wasn't poor until I was in circles where it was obvious that I was. Um, and, you know, all of those experiences have shaped me to be, you know, the parent that I am today. I have four kids. My oldest is 21. I have a 15-year-old and I have twins that are 11. Um, and, you know, I'm very cognizant that I'm raising brown children in a country that, um, like Camille said, often criminalizes um the very things that if white people do is applauded um, and accepted. So that is sort of why I, as we get into the conversations, we'll hear why I'm as passionate as I am because I, I can't stay idle to injustice and I feel an obligation to say something. Um, that's why, that's what sort of has shaped my perception about um, how to be an advocate and, and an activist. Thank you. No, thank you. That's that's just a great story. And uh, Shino, uh, 
toss it to you and, and round out our conversation here about kind of who you are and, and, uh, and your family. Oof, tough acts to follow here. Um, I'm the transplant of the group. My name is Shino, and I use the pronouns of she, her, hers. Um, okay, so I was born and raised in Tokyo, Japan. I was born in 1963, spent my first 15 years of life in Tokyo, attending public schools. And then when I graduated from middle school, which is, happens in eighth grade, no, seventh grade, sorry. No, ninth grade, sorry. I'm getting a little mixed up. The middle school in Japan goes through ninth grade. So instead of going to um, high school in Tokyo, I, independently from my own parents, decided it would be great to come to this wonderful land of opportunity. Um, unbeknownst to me, my parents also had the same idea that I shouldn't stay in Tokyo, that I should experience some challenges and hardships because I was leaving, living a very charmed life. So, and I wanted to come here not to experience hardship, right? I just wanted America um, because this is where all the cool things were, which is a really interesting side story because during the post-World War II Japan, everything American was great, right? We all wanted to be like America. And that's what I grew up in. So I came here, but my father had the means to send me to a private school outside of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he picked the most radically different school structure from what we were used to in Japan. So my introduction to this country was this really progressive, quirky private school in the suburbs of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it was a really interesting experience because that's what I thought what America was. And now thinking back, all my friends from those years were friends of color. And mind you, this is a private school. There weren't that many students of color, but somehow looking back, my friends were predominantly students of color. So that's just sort of a parking space for me to ponder sometimes. And then, um, Cambridge, Boston, way too small. It's, I wouldn't even know if I would call those cities because, you know, having grown up in Tokyo, you need to be at the scale of New York City. So I came to New York City for college. And then after college, I got married and my husband is a white man. We have two children. One is 26 right now living in Tokyo. My younger one is 18. And going to a public university, a SUNY system. So I no longer have a child in the New York City K through 12 school system, but I have been an activist for quite some time. And I don't actually really know why I do what I do. Um, the only thing I can think of really is my mother grew up really poor. And then she married my father who was from upper middle class in Japan coming from a very intellectual family. So she experienced poverty when she had nothing and married into this rich family and saw how different things were. So from very young age, she instilled in me how privileged I was. And at the same time, she was actually guilt tripping me too because every chance she got, she was like, you know, you are spoiled, you're spoiled rotten, you're so entitled, you don't understand the privilege you have. Guilt is actually a very strong motivator because a lot of what I do, if I really sit down and think about it, 
goes back to that guilt that my mother instilled in me and my desire, right? Even as a 58-year-old grown-up, my desire to prove my mother wrong or to have my mother be proud of me. So that kind of really primeval, primordial, emotional connection to my relationship with my mother, I think is a big reason why I do this work. I love it. I love it. I mean, your each of your stories is just so, so wonderfully rich and you're different in so many ways, but I think you each have pointed to some some similarities of the the power and passion behind the influences in your life that have put you in positions that uh, really have driven you and are driving you to make sure that your own lives and certainly include the lives of your children are are different, better, and in, in in encountering challenges and inequities that you know still exist in our in our systems and yeah what I'd I'd love to kind of talk about uh is is a little bit about how some of these early childhood educational experiences may have had an impact on you I, I yeah I know it's you know as we think about back in life it's hard to even remember back that far sometimes, but, but we all kind of have some of those memories that say, wow, I remember that, you know, I can, I can remember to this day as a kid going to a Catholic school in third grade in Brooklyn, uh, getting slapped by the nun because I didn't get in line during recess in time, right? That's as clear as it was yesterday in understanding the discipline and the rules that were in place there as much as the rigid rigidity of, of that type of education and the and the, the lack of creativity that was really in the the, the routine of education at that time. Um, so let's let's talk, you know, if there's you know one or two in, you know uh, instances where as you've looked back now in the work that you're doing, uh, perhaps there was an incident that you look at now that you say, wow, you know, this is either how this is what motivated me in some ways. And um, you know, Camille, I know we've chatted a little bit about this in the in the in the past uh, in, in our conversations preparing for this, and you know you you have a wonderful story. Tell us uh, you know some of the yeah, an experience that you think has shaped you, and uh, as we move forward today. Coincidentally, my story is a third grade story, also, um, and I just want to uplift some of what Chino had talked about because I think that. Um, uh, you know, it's just referring to our friendships that we make as, as we're growing, um, people do tend to self-segregate. And when you're growing up in a segregated community, um, you don't have a lot of access to people who are not like you. And um, at, in third grade, Although I grew up in a, a mostly middle-class white neighborhood, um, one of my best friends happened to be Colombian. So, um, you know, it, it, it's just interesting to me in, in the whole history of my life, um, what opportunities that I've had to meet people who are not exactly like me um, and that I've always found them incredibly interesting and wanted to fluctuate in that, in that um, area. So in third grade, um, in, in my zoned public school, 
um, there was a black girl and she did not live in our neighborhood. She was bused in and, um, and she was the only black child in the class. Um, she always seemed very isolated to me. And um, in third grade, I was a very shy child. So I, I was not as forthcoming as I am today and going up and meeting people. Um, but um, it, it always seemed to me that, that she felt out of place and that I don't really recall the teacher ever making any real attempts to um, sort of acclimate her into the groups. And um, you know, it, it just didn't feel like a welcoming environment. And like I can't really say that um, he was mistreated in the way of some of these stories that we hear, um, children being mistreated. But at the same time, um, it just did not feel like a welcoming environment. And she certainly was not celebrated for the person that she was. And she was a, a lovely, beautiful, smart, um, child from, from my memory. Um, so, you know, this idea of, of creating a welcoming environment and um, celebrating all of the beauty of everyone around us, for me, is really important. Um, you know, especially people who are being shut out or, or kind of like pushed to the side, to me, those are the first people that we should be bringing in and, um, and, and like opening our hearts to and just finding out who they are, learning about their life story. Um, and, and this um, has, has become sort of a way of life for me to just be open to meeting new people, especially people who do not look like me or act like me or sound like me or talk like me, um, because we are all living here in this world together. And I, I just think that um, awareness of the people who are around you and circumstances that people are living under um, really is what is going to help shape our future and just the understanding and acceptance and um, compassion. Yeah, well, that's you know, very interesting points. And uh, yeah, Naomi, you talked about your experience in, in, in growing up in New York City schools. Similarities to Camille in terms of how you embraced those who were part of your group and those who weren't part of your group? Um, you know, just like you mentioned, Catholic school. So um, in the 80s, um, ironically enough, um, I also went to Catholic school. But what was very different in the 80s was that I was not the only NYCHA kid um, that went to Catholic school. As a matter of fact, I, every single friend, you know, from my cohort of kids that I was in class with, I would say a solid 50% were from local NYCHA developments. Um, you know, my best friend that I met in first grade um, lived a block away from me. So while it wasn't a community public school, it became a community school for all the kids in the neighborhood. Um, and what was also great about it was that it was composed of, you know, a solid group of NYCHA kids, 
but it also because of the location of the school was across the street from um, a middle class development called Stuyvesant Town, which would tend to be, you know, if we want to correlate race with income, often people of color have less and those who are not of color have more. So a lot of those kids were, um, at the time, it was a, a large Filipino population here as well. So we had some you know, Filipino kids, we had some white kids. Um, and then we had a solid group of kids that did not live in the area, but their parents worked at the hospitals nearby or in the business nearby. So they were dropped off to school while they worked and were picked up. So, you know, while there were kids that, um, you know, from NYCHA, there was also kids that, you know, their mom was a nurse you know, their father was a police officer. So that was actually the first exposure that I had to people who did other things because, you know, my mom at the time worked in a laundromat. She folded and washed people's dirty laundry. Um, and I, my best friend's mom was like the receptionist at a local, uh, you know, walk-in clinic. But that was like, really it i didn't know what other people did so i i got exposed to like a first window in my life that there was a world outside of my block my radius um because all you know during the time that i was living in no one would go past avenue a or actually first avenue once you hit avenue a um that's where you saw things go downhill so i had plenty of friends that would say, oh, where do you live? Let's go to your house. So once I give up, I was like, I live on the street, but like, I'm not allowed to go there. Um, so I already got used to that. And that's why I, I normally gravitated to the kids that lived in public housing, because we were just a block or two away from each other. And I didn't have to deal with the whole, like, come meet my parents, I, I guess, you know, so. And look, my mom did the same thing. I want to know who you're hanging out with, right? But also I think is on the other side is like to see like, is this child some wild child, you know, running the streets? I think my first um, my first identity was challenged when um, I hit high school. And same similar situation, I went to an all-girls school. And at the time, the school was located in St. Mark's Place, which, you know, in the, in the 90s was a bustling environment of, like, embracing weirdness, um and just like who you are and just being different was cool um and i remember you know there was a solid cohort of girls that went to those you know that lived in that building in those buildings i was in town and you know the lunchroom is always a very interesting place because it is probably the most segregated place that you can ever imagine people tend to gravitate and sit next to people that make them feel comfortable. So there was a table with black girls. There was a table with Latin girls. Um, and because we were sort of the majority, the white girls didn't necessarily, couldn't fit at their own table. There wasn't that many of them. So they would sit with the Spanish girls. Um, and look, it was lovely. We, we, you know, we were friends, but what I always what was interesting was the minute we walked outside the doors, we weren't that friendly anymore. So plenty of times, you know, we were talking about what we're going to do this weekend and, you know, someone would throw out an idea and we're like, oh, let's, let's all go together. 
and they would explicitly be like, no, I'm going with my other friends or, you know, a couple of times we're like, oh, you're going down the block. Let me go with you. No, I'm meeting my other, you know, it was always like in another story. And it didn't really occur to me until after several times that I was like, wait a minute. These girls are only my friends because they need someone to sit with. And, you know, I'm the safe option, <laughs> right? Because the Puerto Rican girls look like us, you know? That was another point where I realized what passing meant. Because in my eyes, I felt like I embodied, you know, what a Spanish girl was. You know, I love my music, love my food, love my my personality. And I always felt like I embodied who I am. And I still think I do that. But I think for the outside looking in, they see, oh, there's this light skin. I've been mistaken for Italian. I've been mistaken for Jewish because my name is Naomi. Um, but the reactions that I've gotten over the years, once they realize that my last name is Pena and, you know, in the right environments, an accent will come out. <laughs> um, their faces change drastically. Um, and that is when I realized I have been exposed to a lifetime of experiences because I have basically passed. And that has put me in some environments where um, has made me incredibly uncomfortable because people feel comfortable saying who they really are. And then they have that moment of like, oh, snap, this Spanish girl is in the room. And then the story, you know, then then let's act like never happened. Let's change the subject. So those things um, have sort of enlightened me to what my reality is compared to the reality of others that don't look like me that live in the skin that they have and they cannot take it off um, and are judged immediately based on what they look like um, and raising brown kids because my partner is darker than me um, you know has has made me super keenly aware of that because they've had unfortunate you know experiences with with kids saying very offensive yeah, and we'll definitely get into some of that for sure. But uh, thank you, Naomi. I think there's uh, so many levels from code switching to this notion of of uh, what I call contextual uh, racism that says, yeah, it's, it's okay within the walls until it's, it's kind of like when you see them at the grocery store, it's like, well, what, what are you, what are you, what are you doing here? It's like, I live here. Right? I think I can go anywhere I want. Right. I think that's a, that's a fascinating and we'll get into some of that. I think particularly as we talk about uh, uh, your children and, and what's going on in the New York City school system. Now, Sheena, here it is. You're coming from this this massive city to a place like Cambridge, where I've, I've spent some time with with my daughter and massive culture change in so many different ways. Tell us a little bit about that experience and, and how it's impacted you. Ooh, where to begin? So Japan in the 60s and 70s was a, a monoculture, right? Every single person I knew in my sphere looked like me. Um, but even within that conformist, homogeneous environment, my family was different. My father didn't work for a company. He was self-employed and then he's a writer, which made him even more 
unusual, even for self-employed people. And my mother had the kind of personality that just made me think, why is she like that when every other mother that I encounter from my friends are nice, sweet, and always smiling? My mother is the kind who would yell at other people's kids for misbehaving. No other mother did that in Japan. They may do now, but not back when I was growing up. So I had this um, sense of not fitting in in this homogeneous environment. So one of the reasons I wanted to come to this country is the so-called diversity, right? This is, this is where all these different people come together in this country. And I was looking for diversity of people so that I can feel that I belong, which is an interesting place to be. I was escaping a conformist society to find a diverse group that I feel comfortable in. Right. If everybody's different, then that's the norm and you feel you belong. If you're the only person different in this sea of monotony, then you're not going to feel belonging anytime, any, anywhere. Anyway, I come to this country clueless about structural racism and all the stuff that I now know. But very early on, so I came to this country and lived with my father's friend. He's Japanese, married to a, a white Jewish woman, and they have a son. He was 10 at the time, and I was 15. So this is probably within a month or two of my arrival in this country. He had a friend come over, a white kid, and this white kid looked at me and said, is that your foster sister? And I didn't even have the linguistic skill to understand what that meant, but his parents apparently overheard and then I was explained what that was and like it didn't really mean too much to me because I wasn't even well versed in what that foster care system is. Um, that's not something I was familiar with, but something just felt off, which was interesting to me. I just knew that it wasn't a compliment and it was something that was racialized, even if I couldn't tell you that it was racialized. I, I, you know, the raters go up. So that was my earliest experience of earliest racialized experience. Fast forward to this high school that I went to, which um, actually was the last resort private high school for many students who couldn't make it anywhere else. We had a lot of students with a lot of emotional issues. We had a student who was dropping acid three times a day going to class. It was a really interesting place, but I found it a good place for me because again, everybody was different. So you fit in because everybody's different and there is no one narrative in that space. And from that, I came to a college in Manhattan. That's where I actually realized all these groups of people self-segregate. I came to New York City yearning for that melting pot. I wanted even more diversity. I, wa I wanted more different people to interact with, to get to know. I wanted to break out of this mold of private school into a bigger diverse world. So I came to a college here and then I realized, well, all these groups 
stick together. There was a Chinese women's club, there was a Korean women's club, there was a African-American women's club, there was this other club and that other club. And I didn't really understand why, but that's how this whole school operated. And that was one of the reasons I decided I'm just gonna be an artist to be really different. I guess, you know, it's sort of the weird dichotomy or contradiction within myself. I had this belonging, the need to belong, but also the need to be unique and different from everybody else. I don't even know how those two different ideas come together in one person, but that's how contradictions happen, I guess. So I went to an art school where, again, everybody was quirky and different and everybody really tried hard to be different. So my whole story is really about finding unique individual identity within the sea of conformity and how that relates to racism is a complicated story, but I have another very distinct racialized experience in college and there are many in between but this one stuck with me my one of my professors was famous for assigning a, a huge workload as homework assignments and it was a design class so we had to do thumbnail sketches for ideas and we were using tracing paper back then because there was pre-computer age and he would routinely assign, okay, by next week's class, you have to come up with 100 different thumbnails. And what he wanted was 100 different ideas. And everybody complained. And he, at one point, looked at me and said, well, that shouldn't be hard for you. You're Asian, you work hard. And it sounded like a compliment. So I didn't actually understand why that didn't sit well with me. It took me 30 years until I actually started actively engaging in anti-racism work, I finally understood why that rubbed me the wrong way, right? That's the, the typical model minority myth that erased my own hard work, my own talent. I'm not gonna be able to do 100 thumbnails because I'm Asian. I'm gonna be able to do 100 thumbnails because I am Shino. It was a complete erasure of who I was. And it took me such a long time, but now I have the language to be able to explain it. But I feel like I wasted so much of my adult life being trying to be unique individuals, but at the same time trying to fit in. And what ended up happening is I took that, okay, we're gonna assimilate into whiteness route. And whatever different individuality I'm gonna express, I will express it as something else that's not a racial identity. I'm gonna be a quirky artist, but within the confines of white supremacist identity. But I guess it's better late than never. I now know better than to assimilate into that whiteness and I'm trying to de-assimilate right now. It's gonna be, you know, work in progress until the day I die, but it's been a journey. And it will continue to be a journey. This is a Black History Fact brought to you by Danny Gore and the new three R's. Today, I'm going to speak about Prudence Crandall, born September 13th, 1803, 
and died January 28, 1890. Prudence Crandall was a remarkable woman who opened one of the first schools for African-American girls. Despite the ridicule and harassment she faced because of her actions. In October, 1831, Crandall opened a private girls' academy in Canterbury, Connecticut, where she taught the daughters of wealthy families and the school was ranked one of the best in the state. In 1833, Crandall decided to admit an African-American student named Sarah Harris, who wanted to become a teacher for African-American children. The white student's parents were outraged and demanded that Sarah Harris be expelled. Crandall, however, opposed slavery and believed in educating African-Americans. She refused to expel the young student and decided instead to open a school for African-Americans. Her new school met with much hostility and the four most prominent men in town met with Crandall and told her that they were intent on destroying her school while other townspeople contaminated the water in her well. Within months, the town of Canterbury passed the Black Law, which made it illegal to open a school that taught African-Americans from a state other than Connecticut. Crandall was arrested and jailed for educating African-Americans under the law. Crandall feared for her students' safety and decided to close the school. But today, Crandall's old schoolhouse in Canterbury is now the home of the Prudence Crandall Museum, and she was named Connecticut State's heroine. This has been a Black History Fact brought to you by Danny Gore and the New Three R's.